Well, last week we finished up chapter 3 of 1 Peter. So today we'll go ahead and take a look at chapter 4. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles up there. 1 Peter chapter 4. And once you're there, go ahead and jump back into chapter 3. And we'll read our way on into chapter 4. So 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll start in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water." There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not for the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So, again, as I mentioned last week, the point being made here is very clear in this letter. Live for God, not for the world, not for the lust of your flesh. Pursue peace in your life, pursue righteousness in your life, pursue holiness, and avoid everything else that is contrary to this manner of life. Notice there that we are no longer to live a life that is for the lust of men. In other words, think about the, the things that mankind lusts after. Right? We lust after money, so we consume ourselves with chasing after it. Um, work, workaholics, for example, gambling, um, hoping we just win the lottery, whatever it may be. Always trying to find that quick buck. Buy, sell, get gain. So mankind lusts for material things, but when one is born again, there are different instructions on how we are to live. Now, there are some verses that I often quote to you, but I'd like for us to go ahead and read them together this morning. So I want you to mark this page and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. 
Again, I'm just going to remind you what we read back there in 1 Peter chapter 4, that we are no longer to live a life for the lust of men. Okay, and you really have to take time to think about what does that mean to us? You know, how does that apply in our lives? And then in Matthew chapter 6, very familiar verses, but down in verse 25, Jesus is speaking here. And he says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You know, as Jesus asked that question there at the end of verse 25, I can't think, uh, I can't help but think about how many people and how many Christians included really do live their lives for these things. You know, often we read these scriptures and we just say, okay, these scriptures are about worry. But it's really about where your focus is, you know, what, what you're focused on. And we'll see as Jesus goes on that that is the case. But even, you know, in the Christian circles today, it's all about eating and shopping and eating and shopping and you know, all that kind of stuff. Christianity has become very materialistic as well. But this is the lust of men on display. And Jesus is instructing us to be completely different than that. And he says in verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So you see, what happens here at this point is that people begin to say things like, Well, I got to pursue money because money pays the bills. Money puts food on the table. And then people end up so stressed out because they have to pay their department store credit cards and their cable bill needs to be paid. The car payment is a burden. All of these things, right? And their lives are then full of worry as a result of their choices, right? And Jesus says, which of you by worrying in verse 27 can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. So you know what I think about when I read that verse there? It always makes me think of that old saying that says, stop and smell the roses, right? But you know what? You don't have time to stop and smell the roses in life when you're consumed with the objects of our lust. They become a ball and chain to us and they become a complete consumer of our time because we have to maintain everything that we have gained. And Jesus continues in verse 29 about the lilies of the field and he says, And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So just one of those, not a whole bunch of them together, just one lily, how beautifully God has clothed it. Right. Verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? You see, God doesn't care about the grass and the flowers as much as he cares about all of us. Right. That's not the question at all here. What's in question is how much do we care about the things of God? And verse 31 says, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. 
So in other words, the non-believers, those without Christ, they live in this manner. Okay, verse 32 continues, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Okay, so do you need these things? Sure we do, right? That's not the point again, though. The point is, where is your focus? What consumes you? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about that. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Lord's basically guaranteeing that to us, that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So, Is your focus on the same things that men and women without God in their lives seek after? Or is it about the things that God wants you to seek after? You see, you wouldn't waste a dime on gambling, for example, if you care about the things that are God's. Because you will put every extra dime you have into the things that, are God, that, that God wants us to be about, right? Taking care of the widows, feeding the orphans, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Do you know how many true gospel preachers could use the money that some Christians just throw away for, you know, in a frivolous manner, Right? And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you understand something. You understand that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And your life is not your own anymore. And you are now surrendered to him. And if that's the case, we need to pay attention to how we live and what does consume us and where our, you know, where our mind is focused on, right? Jesus tells us here in verse 33 that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So again, what is it that takes priority in our lives? Is it the pursuit of money, uh, you know, for for the finance and the maintenance of material things? Or is it the kingdom of God and his righteousness that consumes us? We plainly see here where our Lord says our focus should be. Okay, And as we flip back now to 1 Peter chapter 4, this is what the letter is talking about. Not living for the world anymore, but rather living for God. Okay, So back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 continues and says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, right, the non-believers. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So here's some more things listed here, right? And, and as I read this, it draws to my mind how many professing Christians that go to drinking parties and even host drinking parties and get drunk today. You know, believe it or not, there are a lot of them. Again, I know that these are only what you would call professing Christians and not born-again Christians, but this is why Christianity is labeled as hypocritical. But when the Word of God says here at the beginning of verse 3 that we have spent enough 
of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, it's telling us that when you come to Christ, it's now different. That life is over with. And you should now be ashamed of those kind of things and move on into the things that are of the kingdom of God. But we see the word lewdness there in verse 3. What is lewdness, or as the King James says there, lasciviousness? The Greek word used there is a word that means unbridled lust. This is where you do, you do whatever you want to do. You do whatever pleases you with no concern about the Lord or about how what you are doing may adversely affect someone else, right? It means to live in excess, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness. So this is a person that lives only for themselves. And, and it is not at all what a person that is born again of the Spirit should live like, right? When a person comes to Christ, this type of living becomes disgusting to them. And they have remorse demonstrated by a godly sorrow that leads them to repenting. Repentance toward God and repentance toward others they have hurt. Living in the lust of your flesh has consequences. You will reap what you have sown and it will have a lasting effect. But a person that has been born again completely walks away from this kind of life, right? They don't even hang around with the people that they once did, especially when those people have not come to a place of being repentant and born again. Look at verse four. It says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Man, I can speak very personally on this topic here because when I came to Christ, as did my wife, the talk was all about how we had joined a cult, you know, we had got religion, we were now part of a cult or whatever, we had gone off the deep end, but the simple fact was we were born again, we were born of the spirit and we didn't run with people in the way that we used to run with them. It was no longer about the lust of our flesh anymore. We were transformed and we began to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And this is what happens when a person comes to Christ. Okay? And we knew from the word of God that we were to come out from among them and be separate as the Bible instructs us to. Do you know that that's what 2 Corinthians 6.17 tells us to do? You can make yourself a note to look at it later, but 2 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that today is the day of salvation. And when salvation has come to a person, everything changes. Life is now different. It's now about seeking the things of the kingdom of God. In that chapter, the chapter I'm talking about, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it tells us to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Okay. Now, most people take that verse and say, well, that's for a boyfriend and girlfriend, or that's for a marriage. Well, of course it is. But it's also for, also for how you're living your everyday life. We're to come out from among the world. We don't run with them anymore the way we used to. We don't do what they do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And the obvious answer to those questions is what? It has no fellowship. 
It has no communion. There is no fellowship with that anymore. Then, like I've already mentioned, it tells us in verse 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, to come out from among them and to be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So you really should go back and study that chapter and meditate on it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, because it's only when a person does come out of the world and is born again, they come away from living in the lust of the flesh that the Lord Almighty receives them. It's only at that point that the Lord Almighty receives them and they become a son or a daughter of God. That's the only way. There must be repentance and there must be a turning away from the flesh-led life. Don't be deceived to think that a person can remain the same in their sin and be received in the kingdom of God. The Word of God does not teach that anywhere. And we've been seeing that we are to live righteously and holy in this present age, right? Because people that live like that, verse 5 here tells us, back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5 tells us that they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So remember we touched on that topic last week, that Jesus went and preached to those that were in that place of torment and flames. The gospel is that important, okay? There is no other way to heaven. We must be born again. These are the last days. And verse 7 says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. That word serious there in verse 7, in the Greek is the, is the word sophroneo, okay? And it means to be of sound mind and to curb your passions. Be of sound mind and to curb your passions, okay? The Word of God is saying to us here, it's time to get serious. Put away your fleshly lusts, your desires. Put them away once and for all. You once were like this. You used to run with the rest of the world in this manner, but no longer, not anymore. It's time to get serious. Be a person that is a person of prayer. Keep an eye out and watch out for the way that you are living. The Lord is going to judge the living and the dead. No one escapes. And we need to make sure that we are living in a righteous and a holy manner. Again, I quoted these verses to you last week. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, it says, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Remember, who was Hebrews written to? Believers. Written to believers in Jesus Christ. And we're being exhorted 
that, that without holiness, we will not see the Lord. And we need to be careful that we don't fall short of the grace of God. What's the point of all of this is that there is a different way we are to live than the rest of the world when you're born again and you come to Jesus Christ. Okay? And, and there is even more to it than that. Verse 8 here says, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Okay, now I have seen this verse here used within Christian circles in a very gross manner. Okay, people have used this verse to sweep sin under the rug and they have not dealt properly with the sinner. See, we see the context thus far of First Peter. It's all about righteous living. We've been born again through the word of God, right? We saw that in 1 Peter chapter 1. We are to live soberly. We are to live righteously. We are to realize that this place is not our home. We are just passing through. Sin has, is to be dealt with severely. When it says there in verse 8 that love covers a multitude of sins, it's not telling us to overlook sin. It's not telling us to sweep sin under the rug, right? It's telling us that, we, that if we live out love, if we have a fervency for love, then sin won't even be a big issue for us anymore. Why? Because love conquers all. And if we love God, we won't want to walk in the manner that we used to walk in. We won't want to we won't want to offend God. We won't want to live in that way anymore, right? If we truly love God and we're truly walking in love. What do we know about love? Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Very famous scriptures. It's even in Hobby Lobby. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I mean, you see this, these verses everywhere, right? But they tell, us what, they tell us about love. Starting in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Now, that would sure cover a multitude of, of sin, wouldn't it? If I'm living out kindness and, and I'm long-suffering toward others, then I'll be far less likely to sin against them, wouldn't I? Kindness doesn't hurt other people. And love is kind. Love suffers long, too. This reminds me of uh, the young woman or the young man that waits patiently for their spouse. That's what true love does, right? Love does not envy, verse 4 continues. Think about that for a minute. How much sin would be covered? How much sin would be avoided if we're not envious of others? This, again, is how love covers a multitude of sin. Then it says, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If you're living like this, sin most likely is out of the picture for the most part. It covers a multitude of sin. That's what love does. Because love conquers that. And love says, I'm not going to behave in this manner toward other people. 
And I'm going to love God enough that I'm not going to go in that direction. So back in 1 Peter chapter 4, we are being instructed in verse 8 to have fervent love for one another. Because it has an effect. It covers a multitude of sin. Have fervent love for one another. And sin won't happen in many cases. Okay? So, and by so doing, we will cover up so much sin. So again, love covering a multitude of sin is not hiding the sin of others and, and sweeping it under the rugs, right? And just letting time pass and say, oh, well, time will heal all wounds. Let's just forget about it. Nowhere in the Bible does, does it instruct us in that way. The Bible instructs us to deal with it and to deal with the sinner, okay? Love covering a multitude of sin, sins means that you... You live out love and you won't sin against God and against others. It will cover a whole bunch of them, right? So sin always needs to be dealt with, right? This is why so many pastors and Christian leaders get shamed publicly today because they thought they could just sweep their sin under the rug as if it was never going to rear its ugly head and come back. But it does. Okay, so love covering a multitude of sin never means, well, let's hide the pastor's sin. Well, let's hide this person's sin or whatever. Right. So, again, the point of verse eight here is that we are to live out love. And then verse nine gives us more instruction. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, remember, back in the early days of the church, they met in houses like we're doing right now. And I'm sure it wasn't always pleasant to prepare for these gatherings, right? There's a lot that goes into it, right? And it would be easy sometimes to grumble about it, to grumble about being hospitable. And when, and when we do get together, it's important to remember what verse 10 tells us here, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see, if you come and you show up at a fellowship and all you do is really just sit and listen within the body of Christ and then you leave, you never take the time to find out how you may be able to help another member of the body. Well, then you are not living in accordance with the teaching of the word of God here. So again, not only are to we uh, not only are we to live like not to live like the the rest of the world around us, wasting, you know, things, wasting our talents, wasting our money on the things of this world that don't have eternal value. But we are to, but what we are to do is to share the gifts that God has given us with others in the body of Christ. So it's a totally different focus. Right. We are to minister to one another, as verse 10 there says. We have received of the manifold grace of God, and now we are to be good stewards of what we have received. We don't just go and blow everything on material things and live like is described in this chapter here, how the people of the world live, right? So when we show up and we, we give of what we have, we then glorify God in what we do. How do I know that? Verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, what does that mean? What is an oracle? It's not just a town outside of Tucson, right? An oracle is defined as a brief utterance. OK, 
okay? You have something to say, say it, make it brief. And you may say, well, you sure don't make it brief when you stand up and talk for 40 minutes. Well, my gift is not oracles. My gift is teaching, right? But the point is, we, is that we all have gifts. And you give an oracle, it should be, as verse 11 says, an oracle of God. Don't make it about yourself. Don't make it about your opinions. Don't make it about politics, right? It needs to be an oracle of God. And when the teaching is over, I encourage you that if you have an oracle, then say it. You know, we all have things that we can share, right? Verse 11 continues. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that's why I said that when you offer your gift, God is glorified. Whatever you do in the body of Christ, always remember that all the glory belongs to Jesus Christ. He has dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, as we move into verse 12 here, we'll see some hard facts for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, again, so-called Christianity today has no idea of real Christian persecution, right? Back in the days of the early church, though, it was by no means easy to be a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. First of all, the majority of the real early Christians were Jews that had been born again in Jesus Christ. So they were persecuted hard because they had left Judaism, right? The Jews were very proud in their following of the law. And when someone came to faith in Jesus Christ, the one whom you know, they sentenced to death, right? They, they, they hung him on a cross and somebody came to him. This was a major problem. And this person stepped outside of the law and, and came to the grace of God and Jesus Christ. So there, there was persecution, right? And we know, of course, we know that there is Christian persecution in a different form if you stand up for biblical morality, right? For example, uh, you are against the taking of a life in the womb, you know, of a woman. You could then be considered as being against women if you stand up against abortion and say, I don't believe in that. Well, then you might be accused of being against women and their free rights. If you believe that God is the creator, as the word of God tells us that he is and that creation should be taught in our schools, you are considered backwards thinking and irrelevant to progress, right? If you believe that marriage is defined in the Bible and that our society would be best to stick with the biblical definition, then you will be labeled as homophobic and you will be guilty of hate crimes. So there is some persecution if you stand for what the Bible talks about and you stand for righteousness. But verse 14 here, though, it gives us some further instructions. 
It says in verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. I guess the question we can ask here is what part are we going to play? Their part or our part as born again Christians. Do you see that there? If you are reproached for the, for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of the glory and of God rest upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on our part, he is glorified. So are we sticking to our part and glorifying God in everything that we do? But here's a real important point that I'd like to point out to you, though. Okay. After we read verse 15 here, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. I just find it so interesting that being a busybody in other people's matters is listed right there along with a thief and a murderer. Okay? But you see, standing up for what you believe does not mean that you yourself go out and do evil. And we see people do that, don't we? We have seen that over the years. We have seen people go and kill at an abortion clinic, right? Kill a doctor or do whatever, right? But we shouldn't do that. And nor should we get caught up in other people's business. If you suffer persecution as a result of meddling in the affairs of others, then that's your problem to deal with, right? Again, what you and I should be known for, though, is love. Not love that condones or accepts sin and moral decay, but love that has compassion for the sinner, Love that has compassion for the lost. You see, we know from the Bible, right? God's word, that is, that there is a heaven and there is a hell. Heaven is for those that have been sanctified in the blood of Jesus Christ. They have repented of their sin and they've been born again. And hell, right, that place of torment, like we looked at last week, Luke chapter 16, that Jesus talks about, it awaits those that have not been born again. And it really is that simple. You see, hell has no levels. There's, there's not a, a deeper level of hell for the homosexual, for example, than there is for the liar. Okay? The white-collar sinner and the murderer will be side by side in hell. Churches today, denominational and non-denominational alike, are filled with hell-bound people. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, and listen carefully to what he said. He said, most assuredly. So Jesus is saying, know this for sure. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, understand this fact. He said, most assuredly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you know a man or a woman that was or is a, a good person, let's say they feed the homeless, they take care of orphans, they handle their finances well, they're hard workers, they give to those in need, but they have not been born again, that person, as good as they were, 
as good as they are, will not see the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And do you remember that back in 1 Peter, we read that the way that a person is born again, I'm sorry, back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, the way a person is born again is how? Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So you see, the answer is that everybody must be born again. They must be born of the Spirit of God. And when one is born of the Spirit, they no longer live in the way they did in times past. They no longer run with those people anymore. They come out and they are separate. They realize they're not to be unequally yoked anymore, right? So, but I want to stress this. Our number one duty as a born-again Christian is to love, right? We were once sinners, and God commended his love toward us, didn't he? And Romans chapter 5 tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we have to be careful of how we go out into the rest of the world and share Christ with them and to meddle in their affairs. They're doing what they're doing because they're lost. They're falling into these things that the Bible lists clearly as sin because they're lost. But we once were lost without Christ. Okay, So we need to demonstrate God's love to that person that is still separated from God because of sin. You know, be it the, the good, hardworking man or woman, or be it the, the most blatant, vile sinner you can imagine. Sin is the problem. And we know the solution to sin. And the solution to sin was that God demonstrated his love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the answer. So we are to live it, you know, internally in the body of Christ. And we're to live it out there as well, right? Now, will you suffer if you walk in love? Am I telling you that you won't suffer if you walk in love? No, you will suffer, okay? Verse 16 says, and I'm back in 1 Peter 4, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. So as a Christian, you're, you're like Christ, you're a person that's a follower of Christ. You're living like he lived. And you're living being led by his spirit. And if you suffer in that manner, then glorify God in that matter, right? You see, the early Christians did good. They didn't just complain about the bad. They actually stepped up. They went out and they did good, right? Look, as a dad, there were things that I wanted my kids to be saturated in and things that you know, I didn't want them indoctrinated in. So rather than complain about the public school system, I just said, we're not going there. We're not going to do it. We're going to homeschool our kids. As an adult, right, there are things I really don't want to have in my mind. So I choose not to watch many modern day TV shows and movies and such and listen to the secular music. You know, I'm not going to be a busybody in other person's matters. Right. They can make their own choice on how they want to live. It's not up to me whether they come out of the world and be separate. 
But when they come to me and ask me, hey, what's the reason for this hope that you have? Why do you have peace in this situation? I won't hesitate to give them a truthful answer and to say, look, I turned to Christ and I turn away from the things of this world. I want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, the body of Christ, individual members of the body of Christ, need to stop and examine themselves and ask themselves if their life lines up with the word of God or are they conforming to the sinful lust of this lost and dying world. And verse 17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now let me pause right there and ask you something real quick. Where is the house of God? Is it that church over there on the corner or that church over there with the steeple, that church that meets in that school building over there? Where is the house of God? Well, look what this verse says here as it continues. It says, and if it begins with us first, So this verse mentions the house of God, and then it really tells us where the house of God is. It's us. You know, right, that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we are to live again to glorify God. We were bought with a price. Our lives should always draw people's attention to God. We should not be known for hatred, right? You know, is our God the God of hatred? No, he is the God of love. He is the God of compassion. And he has reached down to mankind and he has offered eternal life. But again, the problem of sin remains and we must do something about it. And we are the house of God. Okay, we are the the one that people are going to look to. Right? When people judge Christianity, let's just say, give an example of someone saying Christianity is hypocritical. They don't look at the building. They don't look at the deck, the chairs in the building. They don't look at what the building has on the wall. They don't look at the steeple. And then they say, oh boy, look at that. That's hypocritical. No, they look at the Christian. That's what they look at. That's what people are going to look at and see. Right. And verse 17, again, we'll read it. Again, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So do you see the compassion there at the end of verse 17? It really it's really matters how you read that, right? What's going to happen to these lost souls? Let me read verse 17 again. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Do we even care what their end is? That's how you can read that. Because God loves them and he's not willing that anyone should perish. 
And verse 18 says, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Do you know what the word scarcely there means? It is the Greek word molis, right? And it means with difficulty, not easily. With difficulty, not easily. Again, it's not easy to walk this earth as a born-again child of God. Many people come to it and cannot stay the course, and they turn away. Walking by faith is a struggle in this life. It's so much easier just to go along with the flow of the rest of the world, just to go back to running with them in the way they do. It's so much easier to walk by sight than it is by faith. And this is why so many so-called Christians have developed their own brand of Christianity and come up with their own doctrines. They have created prosperity doctrines and doctrines of health and wellness. Why? Because it's so much easier to receive that doctrine. So much happens, it is easier, right? Other so-called Christians gather for social reasons. They take potlucks and it's all about their gathering, but they don't call them potlucks. They call them pot blessings, right? They don't eat deviled eggs. They eat angel eggs, right? They say they're saved by grace and that gives them a free pass to live like the rest of the world, to live however they want. They, they just walk in everyone else's lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. They go out and they live that way five, six days a week, and they show up for the social gathering at church on Sunday. But it's not what we see in the Word of God of how the born-again person is to live, right? We're not to take the temple of God, these bodies of ours, into secular places to chase after the almighty dollar. And many people are saying things today, well, like, oh, it's okay if I do this, or it's okay if I go there. No, are we to take the temple of the living God into that type of a place, right? And before we finish with verse 19, I'm going to repeat to you verse 1. You can go ahead and look back at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. This is God's word. This is what it's telling us. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. What's that mean? You're going to suffer in the flesh too. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to say no to many things, right? For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Then back down in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God Commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So that's what we are to do. Commit ourselves to doing good as to our faithful creator. And there's so much good for us to do. There's so much love for us to share. There's so many people lost in sin out there that need compassion. But judgment starts with us first. And we need to stop pointing fingers at the rest of the world around us, especially if we're walking just like them. Okay, Rather than condemn the world around us, we should love them with the love of God. And we should come out and be separate. In other words, live differently. And we must keep in mind what John 3.17 says. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. 
And then when we live in this righteous and this holy manner, people can't help but notice. And they will, as we read back in, in chapter three, they'll ask us a reason for this hope that lies. Why, why, do, you, why do you live this way? Why, why do you have this? What is it? Right? And we then will be ready to give them an answer with meekness and reverence. Okay? This is the way we, as the temple of God, are to live. We will draw people to God when we ourselves are lifting up Jesus in our own hearts and in our own lives and showing his love and his compassion to the rest of the world around us. But it starts with us. The judgment starts with us and says, how are you living? You need to examine yourself. How are you living? Come out and be separate. Seek first the kingdom of God. Make this your priority. Okay, God knows we have need of things. He knows we got to get up. We got to go to work. We got to take care of our household. We have to take care of our family. Nothing's wrong with that. Nothing's wrong with that at all. God knows it, but it cannot consume us. It cannot, you know, take all of our hearts and all of our minds to the point where we're not walking in the will of God anymore. That needs to be the priority first. God first, right? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, again, we thank you for your word. God, thank you that by your spirit, you continue to instruct us and lead and guide us through this life, Lord. We know, Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us. When we do all things through Christ, when we live our lives in accordance with your word, that strengthens us, Lord. Lord, in this life, you promised that we would have tribulation. But Lord, our cheer and our hope is in the fact that you have overcome. Lord, by your spirit, Lord, cause us to look within and to examine ourselves and see how we are living. And then to make the necessary change, to repent ourselves. Let the judgment begin within us, Lord God. And cause us to direct our hearts toward you all the more, Lord, and fix the eyes of our hearts upon you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we thank you for this time again in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.